All right, so this is take two. People can easily make knee-jerk assumptions about any given situation, right? When a horrible crime is discovered, we can say it was because people were blinded morally and or intellectually, or if we're superstitious, maybe they were demon-possessed, witches, or any number of things. If we're sexist against a woman who commits a violent crime, maybe we'll speculate it was just her time of the month. Or if we're stereotypical feminists, maybe we'll pin a man murdering a woman on the patriarchy. My theory is that when we make these little or maybe major assumptions, we're sort of acting as cultural ambassadors, you know, little mini cultural ambassadors. And, and that does not mean all of our assumptions are 100% wrong, of course. So when I say it's crucial that the free press is able to speak, not only does that sound right to me, but it seems to be an idea held by a majority of people anyway, or at least as their public, publicly stated position in a place like the United States. For example, the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black said in 1971, the press was to serve the governed, not the governors. So that was in the case of New York Times Corporation versus the United States. And, you know, it's it's a pretty popular idea that, you know, the press is supposed to be free and and all that kind of stuff. That means it is ideally there in order to serve as a check on the government. So in a way, even though I'm not that much a member of the press as a, as a freelance writer and a puny-ass podcaster, I will at least sometimes try to, you know, get the right messages out there and fact-check stuff and try to fine-tune my takes and maybe even responsibly play devil's advocate where merited. I recognize the roles I can play and can often choose to play, you know, in the uh, creative world that I dwell in. At the same time, I would argue, you know, the times in which we live do not afford us the luxury of assuming our world has arrived and that we individually are wholly responsible for all that is wrong with it. In my case, I was born working class. I'm still working class. I'm not the cause of all these problems I can see out there. So it's a bit of a bullshit premise to feel all that guilty if I do an imperfect job. You know, it's it's not all my fault, is what I'm saying. So in a way, it's the opposite of what John F. Kennedy famously declared. So remember when he said, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. It, it turns out that unless I am an iron-willed dictator with legions of sycophantic followers, like certain people out there, I can really only do so much. So I'm not going to be fully dedicated to what I can do, in my, do to my country. Or for my country, I suppose, is what he actually said. But I guess, you know, might have been a Freudian slip. When you do something for your country, you're also doing something to your country, and it can have some unintended consequences. You know, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I do think that can be true. And actually, I'm quite glad that I'm not a dictator. Not only would I not want that level of power, but I wouldn't deserve it, and no one does. In fact, I would understand any calls for 
revolution against me were I to somehow become a tyrant. And, you know, that's it's not to say I call for violence against all leaders on earth or anything that dramatic. I'm just saying I, I understand that sentiment. And really, uh, that brings me to my next point, my next question. Am I a far leftist, a revolutionary? Am I this? Am I that? Do labels even matter? I think the revolution has not come, and it has not yet even begun. Uh, personally, I would favor any reasonable and safe way around any sort of bloody revolution. And I've already advocated for people to try creating alternatives to the status quo from the bottom up. That way, maybe we can spare ourselves a fight or a battle and really just take the easy way. It's uh, it's not only safer, potentially, but, you know, requires maybe less effort. Oddly enough, if you if you were to just create, you know, different organizations and organize sort of a counter economy kind of thing. I know some people out there, they're probably thinking, well, that's what cryptocurrencies are for. But no, 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 that's not really what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking about a little bit more of a free type of an economy, you know, that kind of stuff. And I, I do think that could happen, but really we're just limited in our imagination, largely because of the media and the uh, education system really has a very narrow conception of democracy, especially in the United States, but also throughout the world. You know, we're led to believe that everything um, basically has to go through the proper channels and yada, 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 and... I guess we're all susceptible to that thinking uh, if we're around it quite often enough. But the problem is, you know, you do have problems with that. <laughs> like if there's a natural disaster, sometimes you have to take immediate action. You know, that's one of the most dramatic examples that I could give you, but it really drives the point home. Like if you're in some sort of crisis situation, sometimes you can't put everything through the proper channel. Sometimes you're having to, you know, improvise with whatever life throws at you. And that's really something that you cannot learn fully through any education course or uh, through any ideology. You just really have to do the best with what you have, right? Plus, you know, I, I think going back to, you know, creating on alternatives to the system, so to speak. I think doing that avoids the pitfalls of certain philosophers, planners, and assorted charlatans willing to push society over the edge. You know, I think you're going to have less uh, megalomaniacs stepping up to the plate and, uh, you know, doing everything for themselves at the expense of the population, yet saying, you know, oh, this is making everybody great again. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure some of you do. Wink, wink. As I have seen in recent years, there are indeed many deceivers out there and dangerous people seeking power for themselves, taking advantage of the ignorance and sheer stupidity of the masses. And they get this power because there may be at least a kernel of truth in what they are doing and saying. 
and they swoop in and manipulate people when they are vulnerable, and they make them feel special, like they're part of a special movement with, you know, greater historical significance than uh, anything else in the past. Then they exploit the hell out of those people, uh, perhaps while even putting public health and safety at risk. So I think we've seen all of that. I think I think that uh, just as every great lie contains a kernel of truth, every great truth begins in a lie, and that's perhaps a good thing. So the truest aspects of life will be sharply contrasted by competing lies. So over time, we know what is true better because we have seen the potentially destructive power of lies. And really, I think this can be well understood by sort of dissecting some basic claims about the world around us. For example, some make the assumption that we need a, need a great powerful leader with dictatorial powers and that this one person and his or her advisors should essentially be able to make life and death decisions for the rest of us. So we've seen that time and time again throughout history, and it's not really a trend that has gone away. Well, I see the folly in all of that, because what do people with power often do? They abuse or even kill others with it, a lot of the time anyway. And throughout history and right up to the current day, we're really just seeing a lot of this happening. Sure, we might pretend a leader is great, maybe even godlike, and some will assume leaders are literal gods, but we also know the powerful can be malignant narcissists. And I could drop further hints here, but y you know what I'm saying. For example, uh, for another example, you could look at serial killer Ted Bundy. He was a person who at times had considerable power in his life in his own limited way, and he must have felt like a god he ultimately achieved a true level of fame that put a little sparkle in his eye that he probably didn't have before he discovered that fame. And to this day, he seems to inspire that fascinating question. How many women can be murdered by one man? And that's really his legacy. You know, I mean, <laughs> just despite how great he thought he was, really his legacy is just something disgusting. Um... However, Bundy was not uniquely murderous by any means, or uniquely evil, or whatever term you care to use. He was, at his core, a power seeker, and others paid the price for his pursuits, just like you can find in political systems. I mean, am I saying it's exactly like that? No, but it, there's definitely a lot of uh, crossover potential, and I, I, think, I think the recent years have really made this clear as we've seen a resurgence of these sort of neo-fascist leaders. And they're all megalomaniac, and they're potentially willing to sacrifice others for their own greatness. So in Ted Bundy's case, his power stemmed from his desire for femicide. But such violence can obviously take countless different forms, and people have already seen many of them, to the point where it still jeopardizes what we call civilization. And on that note, what is civilization under the best, most optimistic definition? Civilized people have three requirements, as far as I can 
narrow it down. They must be intelligent or relatively intelligent. They must be relatively well-educated. And they must be relatively civil. Well, to me, that idea instantly clashes with some other concepts of civilization or being civilized. So he had this guy named uh, Richard Henry Pratt, who infamously said regarding the education or that really is indoctrination and cultural genocide of Native Americans, he said, kill the Indian and save the man. So that's a part of history. And unfortunately, it has had some lasting implications. As an interesting side note, Pratt is also associated with the first recorded use of the actual word racism, which he used in 1902 to criticize racial segregation. So history sort of throwing some convoluted curveballs in our direction, right? You know, on the one hand, this guy was running these uh, indoctrination centers that were basically killing off uh, Native American cultural aspects. Yet he apparently was against racial segregation. So it's complicated legacy. And that's, that's exactly why I said, you know, when you're trying to assess history, it pays to try to understand the whole picture of what was going on. Because some of these historical figures, they're complicated in some ways. You know, it's hard to truly narrow down exactly what was going on in their minds. And for better or worse, what they were thinking actually mattered. So it does pay to actually try to understand some of these things to the extent that they can be understood. We do not need geniuses in government or a geniocracy. I think we need geniuses in education, and that's real education rather than indoctrination, you know, in the style of Richard Henry Pratt, or the kind that is simply about forcing cultural values down our throats, assimilation style, and what we might ultimately ultimately call cultural genocide. And I say that not as someone who fell victim to some woke agenda, ooh, spooky, in a liberal indoctrination center that they so often call public education, but because I accept that no one is perfect. Not myself, and certainly not these great historical leaders whose Johnsons were all supposed to eternally slobber over. Or that's how we were supposed to view a lot of them, especially back in their heyday, right? But over time, we learned that these historical figures were actually flawed, and that in some cases, maybe we could even make fun of them, denigrate them in some ways. Not that we should get too carried away in that regard either, but, you know, sometimes that can make history more interesting if we're willing to take these once great figures down a peg. It's all part of the process of really better understanding history and ourselves and our role in it. You know, sometimes you have to make fun of these people, like, as if we're comedians or however you want to put it. And I think that helps us better understand and really contextualize the folly of man, so to speak. The simple truth is you will never find a man 
who does not occasionally wonder how the hell he got himself into this mess. And I think we all have spells like that. And then he wonders why other people don't wonder the same thing. So real education makes us question our knee-jerk reactions. It makes us see the folly in the idea of obey your instinct, it is always right. Or obey your parents, it is always right. Or, you know, obey tradition. We know it's not always right. We know it's not. But, you know, that's the problem with, uh, you know, uh, following norms is that sometimes it leads to abnormality. Aside from that, let's finally call bullshit on the false dichotomy between moral ideas and reason or logic. I think those things can often go hand in hand, augmenting each other and our understanding of the world. So, you know, the, uh, the intellect is not always in contrast with morality. You know, morality and emotion are not always 100% irrational. I think there's a real common thing where people will make those seem like they're at complete polar opposites when sometimes they're not. So really, that's all I have to say for now. I hope this did provide some food for thought, and uh, you have a good day.